Our scripture reading for today is Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. Listen now to the word of the Lord. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and sea obey him? The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Please pray with me. Lord, speak now your word. Let your word take deep root in our hearts that we may move from little faith, from microscopic faith, to faith that can move mountains. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Uh, For those of you who might be new, uh, this is the second in a series of sermons I'm preaching uh, from the Gospel of Matthew, which I've entitled Microfaith. Uh, Last week, we saw that Jesus chided his disciples, calling them micro-faithers for their lack of faith, for the smallness of their faith, for their uh, anxiety. And today, as you just heard, he calls his disciples a second time micro-faithers for their fear in the midst of this uh, storm. Uh, Just to situate our reading this morning, in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, laying out his vision of what life lived in obedience uh, to God's plans uh, look like, uh, what a life that completely trusts in God is going to look like. And then beginning with chapter 8, Jesus then demonstrates in his own life and ministry what that looks like, right? He he shows them, this is what I was talking about, uh, primarily through a ministry of healings. Now, unlike uh, influencers today, and most people, I would say, and organizations and even churches, Jesus is not trying to grow his brand by any means necessary. Instead, seeing another crowd, we are told, he orders his disciples to go to the other side as if he's trying to get away from the crowds rather than trying to draw them. And then here we have two would-be disciples approaching him. The first is a scribe who tells Jesus, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. In those days, students would approach rabbis to study with them. And so this scribe is essentially telling Jesus, Jesus, today is your lucky day. I'm a five-star recruit. I could have gone to any seminary in the country, studied under any professor, but I decided that I'm going to go to your school and study with you. I'm going to follow you. I imagine most of us might have just rolled our eyes 
But Jesus tells him that life with him is not like studying in the comforts of an ivory tower and that he does not even have what foxes and birds of the air have, a home, a place to lay down his head. He's a homeless, itinerant preacher, dependent on the hospitality of others and in the providence of God. Jesus wants the scribe to be clear what it is to be his disciples, what it is to follow him. He's just given orders to go to the other side, to a foreign Gentile territory, an inhospitable place, possibly hostile. His entire life and ministry will be characterized by hardships, alienation, persecution, and ultimately death. And so Jesus is here asking him, are you really sure you want to follow me? Are you sure that you want to follow me? The second would-be disciple tells Jesus, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. In those days, again, uh, when your father died, you had to bury him and anyone who died on the same day. And mourning would go on for a week. And then the eldest son would be responsible a year later to return to the gravesite, to the tomb, to collect the bones and to rebury them uh, in an ossuary. The duty to properly bury one's parents was so important, so important, that it was the one exception that the rabbis allowed for not reciting the Shema every day. The Shema, as you might remember, is the foundational truth upon which all the uh, Jewish beliefs were rooted. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Every pious Jew was expected to recite the Shema the first thing in the morning, but the obligation of caring for the death of a father was so important that it took precedence even over the saying of the Shema, if your father were to die. So on the surface, the request seems very reasonable. Of course you should be excused to go and bury your father. However, it cannot be that this is a son whose father has just died that day and that he's asking to be excused for the day. If his father had indeed died that day, and he's a filial son, as his question seems to indicate, then he would not be with Jesus in this moment. He would be at home taking care of the burial arrangements. Rather, to bury one's father is an idiom, meaning to fulfill one's filial duties for the remainder of the father's life. In other words, he's requesting Jesus for an Definite postponement of discipleship until he's taking care of all of his family responsibilities. That word first is very telling. First, let me go and bury my father. His first priority is not following Jesus, it's his family. Now, that's not necessarily wrong. But Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, then even legitimate family responsibilities cannot take precedence over me. He will say a little bit later in Matthew 10, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. In the Gospel of Luke 14, we find an even harsher version of these words. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Harsh words. Now, these are, of course, hyperbolic sayings, not meant to be taken literally. We have to balance these words with others, such as the fifth commandment to honor one's parents, as well as words such as 1 Timothy 5, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for the members of his own household, 
He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. He, Jesus is not calling us here to abandon our families, to hate them, or to you know, let go of our responsibilities. Rather, he's pointing to his supremacy and the necessity of reordering our priorities if we want to be his disciple. I think far too many people treat faith as a hobby, something to do when it is convenient, when other higher priorities do not interfere. But Jesus cannot be just one of many interests, not even the most important of my many interests. Otherwise, faith has no meaning. Otherwise, Jesus is not the Lord, as he must be. Obedience to Jesus demands my highest priority, the foundation upon which the rest of my life is built. There can be no other first love, even not even the honoring of one's parents. I want you to notice here that this man is called a disciple. He's a disciple. He even calls Jesus Lord, unlike the scribe who called Jesus just a teacher. But now as Jesus is about to embark on a journey, a perilous journey into unknown lands, he is reassessing his discipleship. He's reassessing and reevaluating, reconsidering his commitment to Jesus. He's been following Jesus, he's a disciple, but now he hesitates. He reminds us that just because you once made a commitment to follow Jesus, it does not mean that discipleship is automatic or ongoing. Some people mistakenly think that once they're baptized or once they get confirmed or once they become a member of the church or, you know, they say the Jesus prayer or something like that, that they somehow, you know, I don't know, punch the ticket to heaven and they don't have to worry about anything as if discipleship and sanctification doesn't matter at all. Such an attitude betrays a, a fundamental lack of understanding of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, every year uh, in December, our session goes over our uh, membership lists, our roles, and then I am tasked uh, with contacting those members who have not been to church very much at all and to ask them if they want to continue to remain uh, as members of our church. And it's always a kind of a sad and uh, sometimes painful uh, reminder for me um, that some people who used to walk very faithfully uh, with us uh, are no longer uh, walking with us and sharing in the life of this uh, community. And, um, you know, I, I get all sorts of uh, exchanges and, and emails, and I just want to read you one from a, uh, that I received a while, um, from a former member uh, who wrote this. Uh, he wrote, We still plan to worship there uh, at Graceway, but we don't think we will continue as members of Graceway. I feel personally, honestly, that there's a lot of standards that I don't meet as a member there. You know, when I got that, I thought, you know, I, I really appreciated that. Like, here's someone who's honest about uh, his level of commitment. He understood and valued the meaning of membership, right? That, that it was something more than just kind of like, you know, I'm a member there or something, right? And, um, and that, I mean, it's, it's, it's not good that he made that decision, but I was glad at least that he was able to kind of soberly reassess uh, where he and his family uh, are. You know, of course, some people drop uh, membership in the church because they move to a, a different state, um, such as to 
that place which shall not be named. But many people kind of dis discard their faith, not in like this one kind of decisive moment with a, with a career change or something like that, but their, their faith kind of just slowly leaks like, like a deflating tire. And um, almost imperceptibly, right, just, just over years, you get a little less disengaged, a little less disengaged until you find out that like, oh, this doesn't really mean hardly anything to me at all. Uh, I think for many people, uh, especially those who grew up in the church, right, the idea of not being a part of a church or to kind of having to admit to themselves that, you know what, I'm really not a Christian anymore, right? To, to, to arrive at that conclusion is a part of their identity that is very difficult to acknowledge or to let go. And so some people will tell me that, you know, oh, you know, as a reminder, like, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, this year we're going we're gonna to make a... Uh, a more concerted effort to be there. We're, you know, we're gonna, we've been busy, but we're going to really try to, uh, to get more involved this year. And, of course, it's wonderful to see that, and I hope that happens. I pray that happens. Um, and over the years, I have seen people who were able to kind of then recommit themselves and kind of be re-energized in their faith, and it's been just a, a blessing to see that. But eventually, for most people, it comes to be a time of just recognition and eventually an admission that being a part of the church or at least being a part of our church, no longer carries anything really meaningful for them. Now, I'm not equating membership in the church with following a Jesus, but as a practical matter, our faith has to be lived out in community. Uh, you may not remember this, but in our book of order, uh, during membership class, uh, one of the things that we tell you is that a member of the church is supposed to uh, bear witness to God's love and grace and promises to be involved responsibly in the ministry of Christ's church. And among the involvements, among the list of activities that are listed, the last of them is this. Reviewing and evaluating regularly the integrity of one's membership and considering ways in which one's participation in the worship and service of the church may be increased and made more meaningful. And just as we need to reassess and renew our commitments to the church or to anything else that we might be involved in or belong to, Jesus is here calling out these disciples, would-be disciples, to a way of discipleship that demands an absolute kind of allegiance, an allegiance that he is inviting them to review and to renew. Now, we are not told in this story what these two would-be disciples decided. We don't know if they heard Jesus' words and said, oh, yeah, no, no thank you. Or whether or not they said, you know what, I'm going to make that next commitment. What we are told and what we do know is that we are told when Jesus got in the boat, his disciples, those who are going to be his disciples, got in the boat with him. Stepping into the boat with Jesus in obedience to his command to go who knows where, that's the metaphor of discipleship. The disciples got in the boat with Jesus. And then once in the boat, the disciples get their first test of faith when they encounter this, this, this great storm, which Matthew describes as a seismic storm, like an earthquake. And amazingly, even as the boat is being swamped and threatening to sink, Jesus is asleep. It could be that he is so assured of God's protection that he can sleep through anything. But I'd like to think that Jesus is just really exhausted. He's been teaching and healing nonstop, and now he wants to get away from the crowds. 
In my house, uh, we call this uh, a PCN, a post-church nap, right? He's just been working really hard, and now just, he just wants to take a little break. The disciples, on the other hand, they're busy rowing, sailing, confronted with a storm. And like an earlier group of sailors who woke up a sleeping Jonah, they wake up Jesus and cry out to him in just three words in the Greek, save us, Lord, we're perishing. Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And Jesus asks, why are you afraid? And calls them a second time now in the Gospel of Matthew, microfaithers. Why are you afraid? Or you of little faith. You have probably heard what happened last week on January 5th to Alaska Airline Flight 1282. Six minutes after takeoff, a door plug, a panel installed to replace an optional emergency exit door, blew out. The sudden decompression in the cabin ripped a 15-year-old boy's shirt right off sucked it out of the airplane, along with at least one iPhone. The iPhone, by the way, dropped 16,000 feet and survived. So you know there's going to be a commercial about that at some point. (laughs) Passengers understandably screamed and cried and texted their loved ones, fearing the worst. Now, thankfully, the plane was able to land safely with only a few people sustaining some minor injuries. Now, I imagine... If I had been on that flight and Jesus was sitting next to me taking a nap, and right after that hole blew out of the airplane, and Jesus said to me, why are you afraid? I would have said, because the door just blew out of the airplane. Like, what kind of a question is that? Why are you afraid? Because we're about to drown. Right? Maybe a few adrenaline junkies, like, oh, this is fun, this is cool, right? But I think most of us would be terrified. Now, this is not a bad question to ask, but I think if Jesus were taking pastoral care 101, he would have flunked. That is not the time to ask this question. Yeah, maybe afterwards in the debrief, hey, were you afraid? Like, but in that moment, how can you ask such a question? It really makes me wonder, did Jesus really expect his disciples in that moment not to be afraid at all? Would we, if we had the faith that Jesus had, would we also simply be napping through the storm? Is that possible? Is that, what, is that where Jesus wants us to get to? Now, I think we get a little bit of help from the other Gospels because Mark and Luke also tell this story, but they tell it a little bit differently In their recollections. In Mark's telling, Jesus gets up, he first rebukes the wind, and then after there is calm on the lake, he asks them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? So Jesus first calms the storm, right? So this is a little better pastoral sensitivity. After things have settled down, he then asks, Why are you so afraid? Same thing with Luke. In Luke, Jesus also rebukes the storm first, and and then in the calm, he asks afterwards, where's your faith? For Mark and Luke, the calming of the storm presents a miracle, right? It's a miracle, and it's a demonstration of Jesus' power. It, it, It demonstrates who Jesus is, and it's from that then the disciples are invited to have faith in him, right? They see what Jesus can do, and that leads to faith. But in Matthew's remembrance, 
Faith is what you bring to the crisis. It's what gets tested in the storm. Jesus asks, why are you afraid before calming the storm? Before he does anything, he asks, why are you afraid? The crisis reveals the level of their faith, and in this case, it was severely lacking in Jesus' opinion, right? That, that's, that's the way we're reading it. Uh, back in 2013, uh, during, during uh, my sabbatical, <clears throat> our family uh, uh, went on vacation, and one of the things that we did was we went to ride a, a series of zip lines. Uh, you know, we'd never done that before, and we're very excited. And as I recall, all three of my children were very excited about, you know, riding these z- z- zip lines. And they were, like, talking a big game, like, oh, you know, I'm going to go faster, or I'm going to race you, I'm going to beat you, and all, all this sort of thing. But as, as we climbed the tower, right, to get to the top, right, one of my kids got really scared, like, really scared. And... Um, by the time we got to the top, he just did not want to ride. I mean, he was crying. He's like, no, this, and, and I try to reassure him, no, it's, it's fine. You're going to have fun. You're going to love it. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ride the, the there, were, there was a parallel zip line, so I'm going to be right next to you. I'm going to hold your hand. Like, it's going to be great. And, but he just, just screamed and cried and cried and cried. And, um, you know, maybe I should have said to him, microfather. <laughs> um, and it was a bad situation because... If, I, if he doesn't ride, then we have to go all the way back to the car. It's a long trek back. And I want to ride too. And I already paid for the tickets. And so I did what I imagine any parent would do in that situation. I ignored his cries, told him it's going to be fine, and screaming, I had him harnessed to the zip line. And he screamed some more. Uh, but I kept telling him, hey, it's, you're going to love it. It's going to be fun. <laughs> and I strapped myself into the parallel zip line, and, we, and I held his hand screaming, and we zipped down the line. Now, once he got over that initial shock, really, within a few seconds, he was loving it. I mean, he let go of my hand. He's like, ah, you know? And then he just couldn't wait to get on the next one and, and just keep going, right? Now, I want to be clear that I'm not offering this as an example of good parenting, <laughs> Okay? but as an illustration of crisis revealing fear and the lack of faith. Right? Now, from, from my vantage point, I knew that there was nothing to fear, really. But from my child's point of view, like, he just couldn't see that. Right? He had this kind of irrational fear uh, that kind of overwhelmed him. And he had to go through that experience to realize that his fears were unfounded. Now, I think Matthew is framing the story in this way to encourage his faith community and us in our discipleship. He does not present the disciples as models of faith, nor as fearless superheroes in the face of storms, but rather as those who are scared, who are terrified, and who have very little faith. Matthew is saying, look at us. We were there with Jesus. We walked with him. We saw him do amazing things. We saw him perform miracles. We heard the greatest sermon ever, but when that first storm came, we were scared. We fell flat on our faces at our first test of faith. We were once microfaithers. But here's the thing. Here's the thing. They only had a tiny, tiny faith, a microscopic faith, but it was enough to cry out to Jesus in that storm. You know, it says a lot that they cried out to Jesus. 
If there's something strange in your neighborhood, who are you going to call? If there's something weird and it don't look good, who are you going to call? That's right. In my house, you will never hear the words, you will never hear from anyone in my family, Dad, the internet isn't working. Can you fix it? If there's a problem with the internet or the sump pump or anything remotely technological, they know that I have absolutely nothing that I can do, right? About the only thing that I could do is call Mr. Jason and ask him, what should I do? <laughs> if you're on a boat that is sinking, who are you going to call? Not Jesus. He's a carpenter. He's a landlubber. He, what does he know about sailing and boats and fishing? On that boat, presumably Peter and Andrew, James and John, professional commercial fishermen who spent their entire lives around boats and on that lake, wouldn't you call them for help? Of all the people on the boat, it seems to me like Jesus would be the last one you would want to ask for help. But they did. They knew enough to call him. They knew he's no sailor. Right? They don't exactly know who he is. They don't recognize he's who we know him to be, but they knew just enough. They had just enough faith to say, Lord, save us. Lord, save us. That is about an honest of a prayer as you can possibly utter. That's a sign of faith. In the beginnings of discipleship. Sometimes, you know, faith can be bold and powerful that moves mountains. But sometimes it's this. But we see here that even a prayer offered with microscopic, microscopic faith in terror is still answered by Jesus. John Calvin commenting on this passage said, If we fear nothing, the idle apathy of the flesh is creeping in, faith languishes, the mood for prayer turns drowsy, and at last the very thought of God is extinguished. In other words, he's saying, you know, it's a little fear is good for us. It reminds us of our need for God, and it gives us an occasion to reassess our faith and discipleship. And I think, I really think that is what is going on here. You know, uh, this week I was reminded, about six years ago, uh, most of you know this now, you know, I was diagnosed about six years ago with cancer. And I can remember when my doctor uh, called me, and he said the word cancer, Right? When I, when I heard that word for the first time, I mean, I was really scared. I was scared. Uh, I, I didn't scream and cry like my son on that zip line. Uh, but it was one of those situations where I was being asked, like I had to really ask myself, like, why are you afraid? What is it that really scares you? And so I asked myself, you know, what, what is it that is making me so fearful? Was it the possibility of dying? And, and no, not really. I mean, I, I was sad about that if that were to happen, um, which will happen, of course, uh, eventually. But, uh, but that wasn't really the, the source of my fear. Was it that I didn't really know what was going to happen next? Yeah, maybe a little bit of fear was involved with that. Was it that I might have to go through uh, a lot of painful procedures? Yeah, a little. <laughs> was it that I might become incapacitated and then become a burden to my family and not be able to take care of them and things like that? And yeah, probably that's where much of it lay. Um, you know, and again, I was feeling lots of other different things. But, 
it took that time to ask myself and these other questions. And as I worked through them in faith, right, thinking about what does it mean to be a person of faith, I came to realize, you know, you know, most of these fears that I had initially were really unfounded and that I need not fear. Now, I'm not saying that um, I didn't have any fear or that I didn't have any concerns or worries, but the kind of irrational fear that gripped me initially, like that subsided and, and eventually a measure of genuine peace uh, was possible. And that's how I'm reading this passage um, I find that Jesus' question here to the disciples, why are you afraid? It's not really a rebuke. I'm not reading this as a rebuke. Like, what's wrong with you guys? That's not the way I'm reading it. Why are you afraid seems to me more of an invitation to reflect on their faith. Right? Here's what's going on. Like, why are you afraid? What does your fear reveal about yourself and about your faith? Why are you afraid? I think Jesus is really asking here. It's another way of asking, don't you know who I am? Where have you placed your trust? And can you trust me more? I think, I think that's the question. Our reading closes with the storm being calmed and then the disciples asking, what kind of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And that is always a question before us. Who is Jesus? Who is this who demands absolute obedience and priority in our lives? Who is this who commands a typhoon to relax? And it does. Who is this who answers prayers offered in fear and in microscopic faith? Now, Matthew will tell us the answer a little bit later when Peter confesses to Jesus, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ, you all have made that confession at some point in your life. And so I would invite you today to renew that commitment, to recommit yourselves to Jesus, to discipleship, and to following him. He's worthy of your trust. He is able to save. So bring whatever faith that is that you have, no matter how small, and trust him. Pray with me. Lord, you call us to, uh, to trust you, to place our faith absolutely into your hands. And so, God, we want to ask that we might move from uh, faith that is practically invisible. Help us to know you and that in that knowing to trust you more. We know that you are worthy and that the demands you make of us make sense because of who you are, can only make sense because of who you are. Help us, God, in whatever storms and trials we face to place our trust in you. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.